Let me wish you a happy Easter. Um, this is a good day, Easter Sunday. Um, if you're visiting with us today, we've been doing a little series of Easter reflections. You can see it on the screen there behind me. Um, we've been basing these reflections on a very beautiful and important chapter in the Old Testament. These words were written um, over 700 years before Jesus was even born by a prophet named Isaiah. And yet, by God's inspiration, Isaiah predicts in great detail the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus many centuries in the future. We're going to turn to Isaiah 53 a bit later on. Today, on Easter Sunday, obviously, we've planned to reach the last of these reflections. And um, I have three very simple headings for you today. And they're highlighted for you on the worship program there, if you've got them on, the, on that inner right-hand page. This is a good day for you and for me too. This is a good day for you to realize that Jesus really did rise from the dead. This is a good day for you to recognize what the resurrection of Jesus really means. And lastly, this is a good day for you to respond to what Jesus has accomplished for you through his death and resurrection. That's our aim this afternoon. We want you to know the fact of the resurrection. We want you to understand the implications of the resurrection for you. And we want to encourage you to respond to this Jesus appropriately by giving yourself to him even as he gave himself for you. So that's, that's where we're going to go. First of all then, um, let's think briefly about this. This is a good day to realize that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I do think that in our culture generally, there is this idea that the resurrection is some kind of urban myth. You've heard of it, and it sounds like a nice story, but it didn't really happen. The famous atheist Richard Dawkins apparently once said, the accounts of Jesus' resurrection are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. And I think in the same way, there are many people in our culture who claim that the resurrection is something that was made up many years after Jesus. After he lived, you, you can basically treat it the same way you would approach a fairy tale or a nursery rhyme. It's a sort of embellished legend. Sadly, it's not just atheists, though, who believe that. Even people who claim to be Christians sometimes say this. I'm going to go a little bit off piece here. This is not on my notes because I found this after I'd printed my notes off. So if you're following the notes, it's tough for the next couple of minutes. I just saw this on Facebook. I, I don't normally like quote Facebook as part of sermons, but here's someone claiming to be a Christian, and this is what they just said this afternoon on Facebook. They got into an argument, 
And this Christian, or person who claims to be a Christian, said this. When I realized that the Jesus stories were actually an eternal myth and not historical fact, they became infinitely more powerful and actually spoke of real truths beyond the realm of history, science, and man. My biggest regret is that established religions have stifled this deeper, more powerful meaning of Christianity. It has backed itself into a dead-end alley by insisting on a God who chooses to intervene and on turning the grandeur of eternal myth into mere facts. It worships the finger, not the moon the finger is pointing at. And as a result, it's lost the trust of those who may otherwise have grasped God's presence, i.e. the way of true divinity in their lives. Easter is a time of renewal. Let's hope church leaders have the courage to start to steer their words on the path of truth for a change. I, I don't even know where to start with that. But let's start with, I, I, I've written some notes here. I, the claim that the resurrection is a myth and then to say that it points to real truths beyond the realm of history, science, and man, how is that verifiable? Where's the evidence for that claim? <laughs> it's an unbelievable irony for someone to write such nonsense. It's just making things up which is the very thing that people claim Christians are doing. The irony. Here's the basic assumption. The basic assumption is that if the gospel is going to appeal to modern, educated, advanced, scientific people in our modern culture, it needs to lose the supernatural bit. This sort of thing just does not happen. That's a fact. That's not a fact. It's an assumption. Uh, uh, well, we're not going to talk about Facebook all afternoon. But that even people who are claimed to be Christians live in the light of the fact of the resurrection being some kind of urban myth that points to some eternal reality, who knows what, behind it. The most basic and central claim of Christianity is this, that Jesus Christ died and really rose again in history. He was dead and now he is alive. Let's start at the beginning though, shall we? If Jesus is going to rise from the dead, the first thing is, that we need to realize that he really died, don't we? If Jesus didn't die, then he obviously couldn't have risen from the dead. Some people deny the resurrection by claiming that Jesus didn't really die. He somehow fainted or fell unconscious and then later came around and convinced people that he'd come back to life. Some people claim that Jesus actually was swapped for another victim. But there is one key piece of evidence 
that suggests that he did die, and it's this. Both his enemies and his friends saw him die and believed that he was really dead. We know this because both his friends and his enemies went to Pilate, the Roman governor, after the crucifixion. In the case of his enemies, the Jewish leaders who, who wanted Jesus dead, they were very religious and they did not want three victims hanging on crosses over the Sabbath. So they went, little delegation went to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they asked Pilate, it's a bit gruesome, they asked Pilate to have the legs of the victims broken so that they would die more quickly. If you're, if you're being crucified, if your legs are broken, you, you'll, you'll die much quicker. Asphyxiation, you can't pull yourself up to breathe. So these Jewish leaders went to Pilate and said, send your shoulders to break their legs so that they'll die and not be hanging on crosses outside the city on the Sabbath day. So Pilate dispatches soldiers, but when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. However, to make sure, one of the soldiers took a spear and as Jesus is dead, hanging on the cross, he thrust his spear up into Jesus' abdomen. We're told that water and blood came out of the wound. I'm not a doctor, but I understand that for water and blood to flow is evidence in itself that Jesus was really dead already. If he was alive, it would have just been blood. But Good Friday seems to have been a busy day for Pilate because after this, a friend of Jesus goes to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. Jesus' friends, too, were concerned that it was the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day for a Jew would start at 6 p.m., in the evening so they wanted to take Jesus' body down and lay him to rest before the sabbath began in the evening joseph of arimathea goes to pilate who seems surprised to learn that jesus is already dead this time pilate summons the centurion who oversaw all the crucifixions to check i think it's fair to say that the Roman authorities were very used to conducting public executions. But only when Pilate had received confirmation from the centurion that Jesus was indeed dead, did he then give permission to Joseph to go with the friends of Jesus and take down his body. These friends prepared the body of Jesus for burial, believing that he was dead. They used over 30 kilograms of spices and wrapped his body in strips of cloth and they laid him in Joseph's newly cut tomb in the garden. After the Sabbath day, the women then go to the tomb again, presumably to complete the burial process. They go with spices and that's when they have the shock of finding that the body wasn't there. 
So I think it's safe for us to say that Jesus really did die and really was buried in a real tomb as a real dead man. The, the Roman imperial authorities saw it and believed it. The Jewish leaders who wanted him dead saw it and believed it. And Jesus' own friends saw it and believed it. But then there is this claim that he rose. And I just want to, we're not going to dwell on this too long, but I want to give you three key pieces of evidence here for the resurrection. There's a number of people in history who have set out to disprove the resurrection. They've gone to the gospel documents and there are, there are notable figures in history who having examined the evidence we have in the gospels have come to the conclusion that Jesus really did rise from the dead and they've converted to Christianity and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Here's, there's lots of evidence, but here's three. First of all, the empty tomb. There was no body. If the authorities had taken the body of Jesus, all they needed to do was produce it when the disciples started preaching that he'd risen from the dead. Hang on a minute, we've got his body here. If that had happened, we probably would never have heard of, never would have heard of Jesus. Others claim that the disciples must have stolen the body. But I'm sure you'd agree with me, two things are strange about that. In the first place, none of them had any courage. They all ran away. Not one of them expected Jesus to rise from the dead. But secondly, if the disciples of Jesus were lying, you, you still have to ask, why? What a claim to make. If they were making stuff up, they surely didn't need to make up such a radical claim. And then there's also the fact that most of Jesus' followers were martyred for their belief in the resurrection. And yet there wasn't the faintest hint or whiff of any of them recanting or admitting that it was a hoax. Every other human being, every, every other religious leader in history has a tomb except Jesus. The tomb of Jesus is empty. Secondly, just another piece of evidence here. The eyewitnesses, another piece of evidence is that people saw him some do claim that the resurrection stories were made up many years later to embellish the life and reputation of Jesus. But we do know that a man called Paul wrote in the first century, not the third century or the fifth century, Paul wrote in the first century to a church in Corinth in ancient Greece, Greece, Greece and he told them that Jesus had appeared to several hundred witnesses most of whom, he says, were still alive. In other words, Paul is saying, you can verify this claim by going to talk to them. 
Luke is another New Testament writer, and in the book of Acts, Luke tells us that after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And as we've said, many of these eyewitnesses died for their faith in the Lord Jesus and the resurrection. Thirdly, just one final piece of evidence. I wish it began with E like the others, but couldn't think of a word that began with E, so this one begins with I. The impact of the resurrection. I think a key thing for us to notice is the amazing transformation in Jesus' own followers. In the space of six weeks, Peter goes from denying that he even knew Jesus in front of a servant girl by a fire in the courtyard of the high priest during the trial of Jesus to boldly preaching his heart out in Jerusalem and 3,000 people believing his message. The original preaching of these first disciples was simple and you could sum it up in three words. They went out into their communities and said, he is alive. That was their message. These men went from hiding in locked rooms for fear of reprisals to preaching and proclaiming the resurrection publicly and fearlessly, often at great cost to themselves. And then you see the fact that their radical claim about Jesus spread around the major cities of the, of the Mediterranean within 50 years and within a couple of centuries or so, this new religion had even overcome the Roman Empire itself and displaced paganism as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Friends, this is a good day to realize that the resurrection of Jesus is not a piece of made-up fiction or an urban myth or a symbolic story that points to something mysterious behind it. The resurrection of Jesus is part of our human history. It is historically accurate. Jesus really did die and he really did rise from the dead. Hey, we better rattle on. What was point two? This is a good day to recognize what the resurrection means. I, I want to suggest to you this afternoon that the resurrection of Jesus can never be reduced to just an interesting story among many other interesting stories. Luke said it earlier, the central claim of the Christian faith and Christi Christianity itself stands or falls with, with this claim is the resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, Christianity is a lie and a sham. But if the resurrection of Jesus did happen, it changes everything. And the Christian gospel is the greatest good news that you and I could ever hear. Christianity stands or falls with this. So here's what we're going to do. Under this heading, 
I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 53, which we've been looking at over the last few weeks. So here, here's the point where it'd be good if you could find Isaiah 53. Um, we're on page 741 in these red church Bibles here. Um, we've only got three verses left, verse 10, 11, and 12. And so let, let me just give you a little overview. Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12. Each of these three verses talks about after Jesus' suffering, after his death, after the cross. Verse 10 talks about Jesus being vindicated. Verse 11 talks about Jesus being satisfied or pleased with what he's accomplished through his death. And verse 12 is really all about Jesus being rewarded. Okay? So I, let's read them. First of all, um, We'll talk about verses 7, 8, and 9 as well. Verses 7, 8, and 9 talk about wicked people putting Jesus to death and him, burying him. And then verse 10, the writer introduces a contrast. So we're on page 742, Isaiah 53, verse 10. Here's what the prophet says. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he, that is Jesus, will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities and verse 12 therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions, for the, for the transgressors. I, in a way, I really wish you had more time to tease out everything that's in these three verses. And I, I've shown you these three ideas. Jesus was vindicated, satisfied, and rewarded after the crucifixion. And I, I've agonized a little bit over this, because I, I, I don't want my talk to be too long. But um, what, what I've tried to do is to condense these three themes into two key statements. And you can see them both in your program notes there. And the first one is the fact that in the resurrection, Jesus powerfully vindicates his glorious reputation. And the second one is that he joyfully shares the result of his ex extravagant salvation if I remember rightly. Let's deal with this first statement and then we'll deal with the other one. Jesus powerfully vindicates his glorious reputation because of the resurrection. I looked up the word vindication in the dictionary and, and this is what it said. I quote, vindication is the action of clearing someone of blame or suspicion or it is the proof that someone or something is right, reasonable, or justified 
Here's the thing. It's interesting that today is both Easter Sunday and April Fool's Day. How often does that happen? I checked. And it's going to happen again 11 years from now. Um, and it's happened, I don't know, maybe a dozen times over the last 150 years. But it, ironically, it does underline for us today that the cross, Jesus on Good Friday looks like a fool. He looks like a failure. The cross looks like weakness, humiliation, death, loss, shame. But the resurrection of Jesus proves that he is not a fool who lost, but a savior who won. The resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference. And we can see it firstly in the contrast that Isaiah makes. We'll get into these verses in a little while, but that little word yet at the start of verse 10, when I first came to these verses, I thought the yet, it's, it's the word but, isn't it? The writer's saying one thing, and then he says, but, and then he says another thing. And I thought, surely what's going on here? Jesus was dead, yet now he's alive. That isn't what Isaiah's saying. The previous verses are actually all about what men did to Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living. The verses 7, 8, and 9 are all about what humans did to him wickedly. And then in verse 10, the yet is the contrast that's being made here is between what humans did to him and what God did to him. The author says, yet in the face of all this apparent senseless oops, injustice, the author says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The cross was not just a terrible human plot. The prophet tells us here that the cross was actually the plan and will of God. Even though his enemies intended it for harm, God somehow planned and used their evil intentions to bring about salvation. As human beings did their worst work, God was doing his best work. And we have to be careful here. It isn't that God somehow enjoys putting his son to grief. It's even worse in the older translation of the Bible. Verse 10 in the King James Version says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It makes God sound like some kind of sadomasochistic being. In what sense was God pleased? God wasn't pleased to put his son to grief and make him suffer. The text actually gives the reason. It says there, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. 
Jesus, the, the plan and will of God in this is for Jesus to come and suffer and die in the place of sinful human beings. The will of God, the pleasure of God is to bring salvation and redemption and forgiveness and new life and rescue to sinners like us. The reason the Father crushed the Son was to save such sinners and the thing that pleased him, the thing that was his will, was not the inflicting of pain, but the end result of that pain, the salvation of his people. So Jesus is not the weak victim of random human cruelty here. Jesus comes to willingly subject himself to a divinely ordained death that would save others. So the logic of verse 10 is that despite his suffering and death, there are three things that happen afterwards that vindicate him. Look with me at verse 10. You'll see the three clauses. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring, that's number one, and prolong his days, that's number two, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand, that's number three. These are words of vindication. So let's deal with them briefly. Uh, first of all, the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins is accepted. The resurrection proves it. It says in the text, he will see his offspring in spite of his death. In fact, because of his death, he will see his offspring. I, I think it's really interesting that all of the future believers in Jesus in human history are described as, as his offspring. He will see his offspring. His own dear children his family. What that means, friends, is that the sacrifice he made on the cross for sinners of his own life was totally accepted by God. When Jesus was on the cross, some of you may know that he cried out before he died, it is finished. Not a cry of defeat, but a cry of victory. The price was paid. The work was done. The pain was over. And the fact that he rose from the dead vindicates him by proving that what he did on the cross for us was effective. The second thing the text says is that he shall prolong his days. I want to say that because of the resurrection, Death itself is conquered. Jesus died once and he is alive forevermore. I'm sure you would agree with me that death is a very fearful enemy. It comes to all of us. There's no escaping it. Funerals are sad. It, 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 it is as if death wins 
And whatever we achieve in our lives, in the end, death will swallow it all up. Our Facebook profiles can't stop it. I was reminded just this morning that we've had three celebrities, if you like, who have died in recent days. Roger Bannister, first man to run under four minutes a mile. Ken Dodd, much loved entertainer for what, 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 60 years? Stephen Hawking, these three men, just in the last few weeks, the best minds, the most athletic bodies, the greatest entertainers. In the end, death claims all of us and renders, in a sense, our lives meaningless. But the resurrection of Jesus rescues our lives from being absurd. Jesus faced death, entered death, and smashed a way through it and came out the other side of it. Paul, in the New Testament, writes to his young protege, Timothy, and he, he uses this phrase, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Paul says, Grace has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For the first time in human history, hope appears. Jesus' enemies thought that they'd crushed him when what was actually happening was that he was in the process of crushing death itself. The resurrection of Jesus vindicates him because it proves that death is not the end. And there's a third clause here in verse 10. I do love this phrase. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Uh, Jesus is the best boss. Why do I say that? You, you, some of you know that I run a business and uh, I've employed people. And th this phrase, in a sense, is what all recruiters are looking for. People who will carry the vision and intent of the organization and make it fruitful and prosperous. When you, when you recruit someone, you just never know. Recruiters do their best. We have interviews and all kinds of things. You never know when you hire someone if it's going to be a good fit or turn out for the best. The text here says that the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Just to illustrate this, I want to just paint a picture for you that we're given in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation. Um, the curtains are pulled back a little bit and we get a glimpse of, of, of the throne room of the universe, if you like. And God is seated on his throne and in his hand he has a scroll that seems to contain or represent the entire history of the world. And a mighty angel appears and in a thunderous voice that penetrates every corner of creation... This mighty angel asks, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? That would be a good job for a recruitment consultancy, wouldn't it? <laughs> who, 
Who's worthy? Here's a job. <laughs> Let's see if we can go and find someone. And the whole majestic congregation in glory falls silent. Not a word. No one in the whole universe puts their hand up and says, pick me or pick him. There's silence and the one seeing the vision falls on his face crying and weeping. Is everything lost? Is there no one anywhere who can hold all this together? And he weeps, and it's the weeping of a man who is facing the futility of life. And another character comes and taps the weeping one on the shoulder and says, Don't weep. Look! The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's triumphed. He's worthy. He's a recruitment agent. He can do it. And as this weeping one looks up, expecting to see like Aslan or something, who is this roaring lion? He looks up and what does he see? He sees a lamb looking as if it had just been killed, standing right in the center of the throne of glory. All of this apocalyptic language and vision has one purpose, and it's to show this, that when God looks for a suitable candidate to rule with justice and goodness, over all things, there's only one possibility. The question is, who's in charge? And the answer is, the one who laid down his life often, you know, we know this, don't we? Those in charge Often, they want to be in charge because they're in it for themselves. But Jesus is the best boss because his willingness to die proves his trustworthiness. God has placed the history of the world in the hands of a crucified but risen Savior. This sin-spoiled world of wars, famine, trauma, brokenness, this world that hated him and crucified him, this world that so often arrogantly denies him, all of it, friends, ultimately, is in his safe and strong hands. This, friends, is the winning side. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. No one will defeat him. They tried to defeat him. He's conquered death. So here's one side of the resurrection. Vindication. 
the one who died in weakness is actually the King of kings and Lord of lords. His sacrifice for our sins is accepted. He has conquered death itself. He was rejected by a human court, but exalted by a heavenly court to the highest place of honor and power and authority. But there's a second theme here, so we're not quite done, but we will be soon. Jesus also joyfully shares his extravagant salvation. I don't know if you noticed when we read Isaiah 53, did you notice the intimate closeness that the writer describes between Jesus and his people throughout this section? All the way through this section, it's not just talking about him. All of these verses are talking about the people who would be blessed and made safe and happy by him. It's like, it's about Jesus and his people. These verses are not just about his vindication, but they speak of one who poured out his life for his believing people. His almighty victory was all, always designed to be shared. Let me just uh, look with you at verse 11 and verse 12, just to pick out two thoughts. In verse 11, I think what we're seeing there is something of his determined love for his people. It is very intriguing that we're introduced in verse 11 to the idea of what Jesus feels about the whole thing. All these verses describe a what, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at it. This is what happened. It's objective. And yet in verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The, the question here is one of Jesus's emotions. What does Jesus feel about all of this? We're not just describing it. We're getting a little glimpse into what he feels. And after the anguish, the suffering of his soul comes a deep and lasting satisfaction. Listen, no one in this world is ever satisfied unless they have the one thing they most want. It's true, isn't it? And verse 11 tells us what satisfied Jesus the thing that makes him supremely glad. The mi I, can I say this reverently? The thing that makes Jesus feel good is the fact that sinful people are justified. What does that mean? Jesus bore our sins so that God could declare us righteous. God treated him as if he had sinned so that he could treat us as if we never sinned. He was condemned so that we could be forgiven. In the New Testament, there's a verse in the book of Hebrews that said that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him, the thing that 
upheld him as he endured the agonies of the cross is his people. I think verse 11 is amazing because it's telling us that the one thing Jesus wants, the one thing that makes him feel good, the one thing that satisfies him is his believing people. His great delight is in them being safe. If they are brought home to God, Jesus is content with that. Friends, these words here are words of great comfort because they mean that Jesus loves his people and they mean that nothing can distract him from doing whatever is required to save them. When Jesus has redeemed his believing people, he's satisfied. He's content with the fruit of his labors. Nothing else, in a sense, matters to him. This is what he poured out all his life to gain. Verse 12 introduces a slightly different thought. If you look with me there, in verse 12 it becomes clear that God himself is speaking, and he's speaking about his son, the Lord Jesus. And the father says, because of all this, therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. You know this kind of idea here. When a victorious commander in ancient times went out to battle and then came home, the battle's won and there's a great celebration. The streets are lined and the victors carried aloft and receives every kind of honor and glory and reward. That's the scene in verse 12. But there's an added idea here. The immediate instinct of this warrior is to share the results of his reward, his victory, with others. And so it is with Jesus. He won, but his great desire always is to share his victory with his people. God bestows the highest honor on Jesus because he went to the depths of humiliation and anguish to save his people. But as Jesus receives his reward, his instinct is to share his winnings with his believing people. So the resurrection is not just about his vindication, the resurrection is about his joyful generosity. What I'm trying to get across to you is that this Jesus gives himself for you and to you. He wants you. He has agonized over you. It is his delight and satisfaction to give you the salvation that he has won. He died for you. He rose for you. Perhaps you think this is a nice idea. 
Maybe, maybe you feel unworthy of it. It's too incredible to be true. Just look with me at verse 12 again. It says there, halfway through this verse, that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. The idea there is if there was a great list or a register of every, sin, every sinful person who's ever lived in the human race, if there was a great catalogue somewhere with every name written in it, what the prophet is saying to us is that Jesus has willingly come and entered his name into the same list. He was numbered with the transgressors. Even though he is not a sinner, he became one of us. He stood in our shoes. That means that Jesus, he, he is offering himself to you as a savior. He takes your side. He argues your case. He defends you. In his gospel, all the problems are on our side and all the solutions are on his. Hey, we're almost done. In the resurrection, Jesus powerfully vindicates his glorious reputation and at the same time, he joyfully shares his extravagant salvation. So the resurrection of Jesus can never be ignored. We've seen that it's historically accurate. We've seen that it's hugely significant I want to say thirdly, just as we close, that it also demands a response. It is little wonder that the first word of the following chapter is sing. Having said all this in Isaiah 53, the first word of the next chapter is sing. Listen, if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, you can forget all about him. You can ignore him. But if the resurrection of Jesus did happen, you can't afford to ignore him. One writer says this, the cross is not a dreamy religious ideal. The cross is a power. It's working. The one who descended to unimaginable depths is now enjoying the spoils of complete victory. He is actively saving guilty people today. He treats transgressors as his friends and shares his victory with his former enemies. Maybe today, Easter Sunday, 2018, is the day for you to turn to him in faith and repentance. He gave his all for you so that you could give your all to him. That would make it a good day.